Let's stand together, turn in our Bibles to Haggai chapter 1. It's on page 791 in the Pew Bibles. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, we have Bibles on the tables, tables in the back. Feel free to go grab one. It'll be helpful for you as we work through this passage today. We're going to be in Haggai chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 2, verse 9. Please pay attention to the reading of God's holy word. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. And the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you, have no, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnants of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. On the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius, the king. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, 
so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you desperate to hear from your word. And even as you spoke to your people through the prophets of old, you speak to us now in your scriptures. So give us ears to hear from you. Help us to pay attention to what you would teach us. And may we respond with obedience and fear. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. What would you save if your house was burning down? It's one of the classic icebreaker questions in any group. What would you save if your house was burning down? In that moment, you don't really have a lot of time to think about that decision, do you? You can't sit and you can't make a spreadsheet and calculate the costs and say, what is worth most in my house? And I'm going to go and rescue that thing. No, you have to make a split second decision. You have to choose what you value most and you have to grab it and you have to go. Now, hopefully we all value people over possessions. So the first thing that we would get out of that house is anybody else who is in that house with us, whether family or friends, anybody else in that house, get them out the door. And many of us would secondarily probably prioritize our pets, living things, Get those out the door. They are more important than these inanimate objects that are in our house. But once you get past people and pets, then you really have that hard decision. If you have time to run back in one more time and grab one last thing from your house, what is it going to be? And that's where we're probably all going to have different answers to that question. Maybe there's some irreplaceable family heirloom that you want to retrieve because you know you can't get it back. Maybe there's something that has great sentimental value to you, a scrapbook from your childhood, your old blankie, something you know you're never getting back if that thing burns to the ground. The way we make those decisions in that moment is based on what we value and what we love. They're not random decisions. It's the work of prioritization. And we make priorities all throughout our lives in high intensity moments when our house is burning down and in the everyday mundane of our lives, we make priorities. Some priorities are more important than others. In a burning house, it's more important than your prioritization at work or in the home. But in these big decisions, what we prioritize shows what we value and shows what we love. Our passage today is largely about priorities, but instead of being about priorities in a burning house, it's about priorities in building a house. The book of Haggai, together with the next two books, Zechariah and Malachi, uh, it's a post-exilic work. And what we mean by that is this was a prophetic declaration from the Lord to his people after the exile into Babylon. They had returned, and God was declaring something specific to them in that context. And this is a different context than what we've seen so far in the Minor Prophets. The books that we've looked at so far are pre-exilic. 
There are warnings from God to the people saying, if you continue in covenant unfaithfulness, if you continue to worship idols and chase after the fleeting pleasures of sin, if you continue to disobey me and break my covenant, exile is coming. But now we are on the other side of that exile. Exile has come, but God has been faithful to his people. In 722, the northern kingdom of Israel fell to the Assyrians, and they were dragged into exile. In 586 BC, the southern kingdom of Judah fell to Babylon. Jerusalem and the temple were utterly destroyed and flattened, and the people were dragged off into captivity in Babylon. It's hard for us, I think, to overstate how significant the destruction of the temple would have been for the Jews in 586 BC. The temple had been built under King Solomon, the son of King David. It was the center of the life of Israel. It was significant because it was the place of worship and the place of sacrifice. It's where the daily offerings and sacrifices and the yearly day of atonement would have taken place, where the sins of the people would have been covered over, at least a picture of what God had planned to do in the atonement with the blood of Jesus, was pictured to them, the forgiveness of sins and the grace of God. And alongside that, the temple also served a second purpose. It was the place where the presence of the glory of God dwelt in the midst of his people. To lose the temple was significant for the people of God. It would have been devastating for them and their spiritual lives. But again, God and his grace didn't abandon his people off in Babylon. In 539 BC, the Medes and the Persians conquered Babylon, and King Cyrus, the king of the Medes and Persians, allowed a group of Jews to return to Judah and Jerusalem and to begin work on rebuilding the temple again. If you want to read more about this context, read the books of Ezra and Nehemiah later today, and you'll get a better picture of what was going on in this time. So again, when we say that Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi are post-exilic, It's because the people have come out of the exile and returned to Jerusalem and have begun work on the temple again. And initially, when they returned to Jerusalem, they did begin the work. But eventually, the work on the temple had stalled. And this was for a couple of reasons. The first was enemies who were distracting from the work. Enemies who came in and disrupted what the people were doing. But the work also stalled on the temple for a second reason. That is the main reason in this book. It's that the people got distracted and sidetracked by other priorities. Things they thought were more valuable to them than the house of God. They worked on their own houses. They cared about their own possessions, their farms, their comforts, their self-interests. And they had gotten sidetracked away from the work that God had called them to, to rebuild his temple. So God calls Haggai the prophet to go to this sidetracked people and to call them back to their original work on the rebuilding of the temple. And in this is a call to correct priorities. It's in this call that we see the big idea of the passage. We must prioritize God's gospel and God's glory by working for his kingdom. We must prioritize God's gospel and God's glory by working for his kingdom. So let's dive into the passage. Look with me to verse 1 as we look at prioritizing 
the gospel and glory of God. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. The first thing to notice here is the people that are mentioned in this verse. Haggai, the prophet, a man that we actually don't know a whole lot about, but we do know that he was called by the Lord as the mouthpiece of the Lord to declare the Lord's message to his people. So we see the prophet. The second person, Zerubbabel, he is a direct descendant of King David. He is the rightful heir to the throne in Jerusalem. But what does this passage say about his role? Is he the king? No, they call, they call him the governor of Jerusalem. That's because the Jews, although they had returned, were still under the control of the Medes and the Persians. Zerubbabel is going to become extremely important next week at the end of Haggai. So I'll let Josh deal more with him. But one other interesting thing for us to note is that he is also a direct ancestor of Jesus. If you read through Jesus' genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, you will run across Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel. The third person to notice is Joshua. He's the high priest. He's the one who would have responsibility for ministry in the temple. Here in this first verse, we get all three offices of the people of Israel working together. We see the prophet declaring a message to the king, or at least the one that should have been the king, and to the priest, so that the work of God would continue in the way it was designed to work. Prophet, priest, king, all working together for the glory of God. The second thing to notice is the date. And this is really unique. And the history buff in me is really interested by this, and I know Zach Frazier will be as well. Usually, when we give the date for a book in our first sermon on any book in the Bible, we say, well, it was probably written within this decade, or maybe in this 50-year span in the 7th century BC, uh, the prophet wrote this book, but we're not totally sure. But with this book, we actually know the exact dates of the events of this book, and that's very unique. Historians know a lot about King Darius, and what we know from his reign can actually place these dates exactly. And if we translate them over to the way that we count dates in our calendar, the date here in verse 1 is August 29th of 520 BC. And we know that. That's pretty amazing, right? Haggai brought this message to the governor of Judah, to the, pro to the priest, on August 29th of 520 BC. And we'll see three other dates through this book, two more in uh, this passage, the first one, the next one we'll see is in verse 15 of this first chapter. And that is September 21st of 520 BC. They're all in 520 BC. In chapter two, verse one, it's October 17th. And then the last date, which will be in our passage next week, is December 17th, uh, December 18th. That's amazing. We know the dates that this occurred. And some of these dates are actually fairly significant. The first date that we see here in verse 1, August 29th, 520 BC, is significant because it was during the harvest time. And if you look at the verses, look with me to verse 6, and also 9, 10, and 11. What do we note about the harvest in that year and on that date? We see that the harvest was terrible. They had sown much, but harvested little. The heavens withheld the dew. 
The earth withheld its produce. Drought was on the land, the hills, the grain, the new wine, the oil, the plants, the men and beasts, and on all labors. They were in a really bad place in this harvest season. I think with how farming and the transportation of food works today, we really have a hard time grasping how serious a bad harvest would have been in 520 BC. How terrifying that would have been for God's people. But this bad harvest wasn't random. It was the work of God. If you look at verse 9 more clearly, it says, You looked for much, behold, it came to little. When you brought it home, I blew it away. This bad harvest, this drought upon the land was actually the work of God. They were suffering under the consequences for their sin. And what was their sin? It was their disordered priorities. And not just ordinary disordered priorities. If you go to work one day and you get your priorities wrong, you might not get as much done as you hope to. If you're working at home and taking care of the kids and you disorder your priorities, you might not get the laundry done that day. But this isn't ordinary priorities. These are disordered priorities that show a deep heart issue that is going on in the people of God. Look with me at verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then verse four, is it a time for you, you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? They didn't prioritize the rebuilding of God's house. Instead, they prioritized their houses. They were decorating their houses, putting the final touches on their interior design. And that house renovation they always wanted to do. All the the while, God's house is lying as a pile of rubble in the very city that they are building their own houses. They were prioritizing their self-interests, their comfort, and their own prosperity. And interestingly, by prioritizing their comfort, God forbade them from having comfort. In seeking after the the harvest, and seeking after prosperity, God gave them drought. In seeking after financial wealth, it says... And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. In verse 6, it's as if God had poked holes in their money bags and they drop a coin in and the coin falls right back out the other side. God was not letting them have satisfaction in the things that they were seeking satisfaction in. They were wanting the blessings of God without God himself. They wanted their houses, but they cared nothing for the house of God. What should they have prioritized? They should have prioritized God's gospel and God's glory. Look with me to verse 8. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build that house. Build the house that, there are two things, that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. These two things are the references to those two main functions of the temple that I mentioned earlier sacrifice, and the presence of the glory of God in the midst of his people. That first one, that I may take pleasure in it, from the mouth of the Lord there, is a reference to the sacrifices. The word for take pleasure is used throughout the Old Testament as a reference to the sacrifices in the way that they pleased the Lord and covered over the sins of the people. So by failing to prioritize the temple, They were showing that in their hearts, they thought very little of the seriousness of their own sin. 
and the necessity of the grace and forgiveness of God in the sacrificial system. They were showing that they did not prioritize the gospel of God. And then we see the second priority that they should have had. God says, and that I may be glorified. This is a reference to the temple as the place where the glorious presence of God dwelt and manifested in the midst of God's people. So again, here, by failing to prioritize the temple, they were failing to prioritize the glory and presence of God. They said, God, we don't really care whether you dwell amongst us or not. And we don't care all of that much for your glory. We would rather have our own houses and our own pleasures. And so God, through Haggai in verses 5 and 7, called these people with their disordered priorities to consider their ways. You see that phrase twice, verse 5 and verse 7, consider your ways. This is call from the Lord. They were called to take a look at how their actions reflected their values and to see the consequences of those actions. And by the grace of God, they responded. In verses 12 through 15, on September 21st, 520 BC, as we see in verse 15, the people repented. It even says in verse 12 that they obeyed and they feared. They turned from their sin, as Chris so perfectly talked about repentance with the children. They turned away from their sin and they turned to the Lord in new obedience. And this was ultimately a work of God in them. We see three times that the Lord stirred them up. He stirred up the heart of Zerubbabel. He stirred up the heart of Joshua. He stirred up the heart of the people for the work of God. And may God do that same work in us. Repentance is a work of God in the heart of his people that draws them away from their sins and stirs us to a new obedience to follow the Lord. So thus far, we've kept the focus on 520 BC and what's going on then. But how does this translate to us in 2023 AD here on this day after a blizzard? What do we do in response to this? First, we need to consider our ways. That call from the prophet is just as needed today as it was then. We need to take an honest stock of how our actions reveal our priorities and our values. Do you prioritize your own comfort and interests, or do you prioritize the gospel and glory of God? I think it's one thing to say it, but does your life show it? If someone followed you around for a week and took notes on your words and actions, what would they say you prioritize and value? Is it clear that you love the Lord that you love his gospel, that you long for his glory. In ecology, the study of ecosystems, there are a thing called uh, indicator species. If you're studying a stream ecosystem, something I studied a bit in college, and you want to know how healthy is this stream, how healthy is this ecosystem, how clean is the water and the habitat, there are indicator species that you can look for in that stream, particularly different species of bugs. You can actually tell how healthy a stream is by going up, picking up the rocks in the stream, turning the rocks over, and looking at the types of bugs that are crawling around on the rocks. 
Lexi knows I, I do this all the time when we're walking along streams, and it probably annoys you to no end that I just want to look at bugs all the time. But there are indicator species. If you see a high abundance of mayflies, caddisflies, and stoneflies, you know that that is clean water and probably a healthy ecosystem. I believe that there are also indicators in a similar way for spiritual health. And you could probably think about a number of different things that can serve as these indicators to help you take stock of how healthy am I spiritually? What am I actually prioritizing? I think two big spiritual indicators are our budgets and our schedules. Where do we spend our time and where do we spend our money? Am I putting these things towards building my house or God's? Where are we spending our money and where are we spending our time? We need to consider our ways and take an honest stock of our lives. But then second, once we have considered our ways, we need to get to work. That's why God sent Haggai to the people to call them back to the work. We need to reorient our disordered priorities by the power of the grace of God in our hearts. And then in active repentance, we need to get to work on God's house. But what does this activity look like for us now? For God's people in 520 BC, that looked like building a physical temple. For that reason, this passage is often used for churches when they're doing building projects. They want to add an addition to the church. And so they preach from Haggai 1 and they say, give money to our church so that we can build the house of the Lord. Now, I think that can be like a secondary or tertiary application maybe of this passage, but that's not actually at the heart of it for us. We need to understand that there has been a redemptive historical shift that has taken place between 520 BC and where we are now in the new covenant. We know now that Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the house of the Lord. In John 1.17, talking about Jesus, it says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the new temple, where the glory of God dwells in the midst of the people of God. And then in Jesus, we too are being built up into a spiritual house in the temple of God. As 1 Peter 2 reminds us, Jesus is the living stone, but we are like living stones and we are being built up into a spiritual house. That's temple language. We're being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable, acceptable to God. Again, temple language, sacrifices through Jesus Christ. So for us to prioritize the gospel and the glory of God, it no longer looks like building a physical house. It looks like serving Christ and building his kingdom. This type of prioritization is summed up so well for us by Jesus in Matthew chapter 6, what we read in our New Testament reading, in verses 31 through 33. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. The Gentiles were seeking after comfort. They were seeking after money and clothes and food. 
Does that remind you of anybody in the passage that we've seen today? To remind us of the Jews in Haggai's day, seeking after their homes and their food and their comfort and pleasure. But Jesus says, do not seek after these things. The Gentiles seek after them. But what would or what should we seek after according to Jesus? He says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Seek first the kingdom of God. Above all other things in your life, give your life, give your money, give your time to Christ and his kingdom. There is no other cause more worthy of your whole self than the gospel and the glory of Jesus Christ. Nothing. And when we get to chapter two, we notice that almost a month has gone by since they began their work. Verse 1 tells us that it's now October 17th, the 21st day of the seventh month, as it tells us. And this specific day, again, is significant for us. It would have been the end of the Feast of Booths, a celebration of the harvest. But again, what do we know about the harvest this year? The harvest was terrible. The Feast of Booths would not have been much of a feast for the people of God this year. It probably would have been very deflating and very discouraging for them. And as they're all gathered together in Jerusalem for this feast, what is in their midst the whole time? This unfinished pile of rubble that was once the temple. And they look at it. They're discouraged. They're worn down. They've done all of this work for almost a month. And to them, it seems like they have accomplished very little. The temple looks as nothing in their eyes. Verse 3, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it as nothing in your eyes? There were people who were with them in that day who had seen the previous temple, who had been in Jerusalem before the exile. They had seen the gold and the glory and this majestic temple. And now they look at a pile of rocks and it appears as nothing in their eyes. And you can probably imagine returning to your own hometown if you are in a war-torn country and your childhood home is leveled to, this, to the ground. This home that you spent your life in, this home that has so many memories to you that you are so connected with is now just a pile of, of timber, charred timber lying on the ground. But for them, this was the house of God and it was destroyed. It's so easy to grow discouraged in our work for the kingdom of God. Sometimes we step back from everything we've done and all of the effort that we've put in as individuals or as a church, and we wonder why it feels like we've not gotten anywhere. We look at the pile of rubble that is often our lives and is often our world and is sometimes the church, and we wonder, is it really worth it at all? Do our efforts really make any difference at all? But God gives his people in Haggai's day two motivations for them to continue the work despite their discouragement. And these are motivations that we need to hear as we live for our God. The first motivation in verses 1 through 9 here in chapter 2 is God's presence. God's presence. Look at verses 4 and 5 in chapter 2. It says, yet now be strong. O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord, be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. 
Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. When Israel left Egypt, it was the presence of God among them that protected them, that guided them, that strengthened them. And now God is saying to them, back then in that covenant that I made with you, I promised my presence among you. And that promise still stands. I am still your God. I am still with you. Be strong and work and fear not. I think there are many things that we wouldn't be willing to do on our own that we would do if someone was with us. Maybe you wouldn't go skydiving on your own, but maybe perhaps you would do it if a friend joined you. I would never skydive, even if 10 people did it with me. But what we see here with the presence of God is more than just the encouragement of a close friend doing something hard alongside us. The presence of God strengthens us, equips us for the very work that God calls us to do. In the great commission that Jesus gave to his church in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus gave us the great task that he calls us to as his people. What is the work as we seek the kingdom of God? Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. This is our work, the task that our God has given us. But let's not forget the very next sentence out of the mouth of our Lord. So easy to forget. But Jesus says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We get discouraged, don't we? We get tired, but Jesus says, I am with you, and I am with you always. I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to forsake you. I will strengthen you. Take heart, my people. I am in your presence. My spirit remains in your midst. So we're encouraged by the presence of our Lord. We're also encouraged by future glory. The second great encouragement in this passage, future glory. Verses six through nine. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine. And the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. They longed for the past glory of the temple. But instead, God showed them the future glory of the temple. A glory that would far outstrip any glory that the temple had ever had in the past. God promised to shake the nations 
an act of judgment against all those who opposed God and his kingdom. But it's also here an act of gathering, gathering the treasures of the nations, the silver and the gold to beautify and build the house of God. For them, what they saw in front of their eyes was a pile of rubble, but what God invited them to see was a glorious shining temple full of the glory and the peace of God. And Jesus is that more glorious temple. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus declared about himself, something greater than the temple is here. Something greater than the temple is here. And we know from Jesus that he is the temple that was torn down in his suffering and his death. But the temple that then was built up in glory in his resurrection. And Jesus now is gathering to himself the treasures of all nations. But this treasure is not mere precious stones, is it? He's not gathering silver and gold. He's gathering people. Jesus is gathering living stones. The treasures of the nations that build the house of God are the people that Jesus redeems by his own blood. We as living stones are being built together into this temple, the dwelling place of God. And we have a privilege now of being a part of his kingdom work of gathering these stones, the silver and gold of the nations, even our neighbors, our friends, and our family to build the glorious temple of our God through the gospel. But like the Jews in 520 BC, we do not yet see the temple in all of its glory, do we? We don't see it. We toil and we labor and we wonder if it's worth it. On the surface, we see a church that is distressed and misguided and persecuted in our world. But under the surface, waiting to be revealed one day, when Christ returns, is a temple of greater glory than we could possibly imagine. And again, like the Jews, we're tempted to look back at what, at what once was, to look back on the good old days. We do that so often, don't we? If only we could get back to the 1950s or to the 1780s, or as good Protestants, maybe we say, if only we could get back to the Reformation, or if we could get back to the early church, if only we had Solomon's temple. But instead, God invites us not to look back. He invites us to look forward to what will one day be. The task set before us in our work for Christ and his kingdom is not done. We are called to labor to build his temple by gathering people from every nation, including Oshkosh. But we do this work without losing heart because Christ is with us. Because Christ is going to accomplish the work that he has started. He will fill his house with glory. And one day we will see his glory fully revealed and we will dwell with him forever. forever. So brothers and sisters, get to work. Be strong and don't lose heart. Our God is with us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your promises the promises that sustain and encourage us, when everything around us discourages us, when we're distracted by our own pleasures and comforts, when we're discouraged by the state of the world or the church or even our own selves, 
Father, remind us of your promise that you are with us. Remind us of your promise that you will accomplish your work and you will be glorified. And give us hearts that long for this, O oh God. Hearts that desire your glory in all things. We pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.